Hello and welcome to the North American Guitars Talking Guitar Podcast. In this first episode, we kick off with the one and only Mr. Grit Laskin, talking about how he got into the industry, what inspires him for his phenomenal inlay work, and of course, the very beautiful 10th anniversary guitar that we just had delivered to the showroom. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks. So how have you been? How have you been coping? I think the, the question, the first question I just wanted to ask you is how have you been coping with the lockdown? Yeah, you know, not too bad. I mean, uh, I work solo. And uh, because of that, even with uh, the government uh, committees that, you know, shut certain businesses, they said I can keep working mm. since uh, I'm not open to the public. It's not like a retail place. So I've just been working away each day. And uh, but, you know, the rest of our lives are all constrained I mean, my wife and I, we're, we're culture vultures for sure. We go to <laughs> concerts and theater subscriptions and ballet subscriptions. And we love going to the movies in the big theater, not just at home, you know, and friends and dinners and all that's not happening, right? I know. It's the weirdest thing in the world, isn't it? I mean, I, I've got two, two, two young children, as you know, uh, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and they are... They're ready to see some friends, that's for sure. Oh, there's, God, there's I know. I can dress up as a pirate, and then it gets boring. <laughs> yeah, I know. You've got to deal with kids. I know that's tough. <laughs> and I hear about, you know, people having to homeschool, and yeah. yet they've got their own work to do at home if they can. Yeah. Or, but, I mean, everybody's hurting. I, I feel for a lot of the cultural side. Mm. All uh, Well, you know, all the people connected to culture... Mm. Even even in our world, it isn't just a guitar made. It's the retail businesses. It's the repair places. Yeah, yeah. It's the people who make the strings and the polish and make the supplies. Everybody is suffering. Yeah, well, it's and funny actually because we um we have a we have a a great in house. We have two uh, techs that come in um, throughout the week. Uh, one's a guy called Dave, and one's a guy called Kenji. And um, when I haven't seen Kenji for a while, but uh, the other day uh, we were shipping a bunch of guitars out and I just had to get him to come down. I said, you know, are you okay to come down? And he said, yep, yeah, sure. So he drove in and then as he came to the, the sort of workshop, I then left, uh, the, it was in the car park. He then came in and then I just said, just shout, text me when you're finished and done. And then he kind of came out and, but yeah, you're right. He just said, it's just, it's, it's nice to actually see, even if you're waving across a car park, it's nice to see another human, you know? Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, our uh, my one day off the week is Saturday, and, and my wife and I have been just going out for walks in the neighborhood, you know, and mm. everybody's just saying hello and waving from a distance, yeah. but just happy to encounter other human beings yeah, who, yeah. Are, who are out, you know? Well, I think and, that's going to be that's going to be the nicest thing about this lockdown is is that, people will be craving that human uh, interaction again, you know, not looking at a screen. But at the same time, it's, it's you know, uh, driven people to connect more in a way, in a weird way, you know, like we are now doing this. Um, yeah, yeah, no, and I've been Zooming conferences around, uh, whether it's business meetings or family. I have a, a my, my family, I have a sister who lives in London, your London. Yeah. I have another sister who lives out in the West Coast of Canada and BC, another one in Michigan, another uh, son-in-law in Texas, 
um, you know, family all over the bloody place, and we all we zoomed together. It was it was crazy. Yeah, it's becoming a thing, isn't it? It's like my my wife seems to with her family have these hilarious chats, whether it's a Zoom or a WhatsApp. Yeah, and they half you'll be having they'll be having a really serious in depth conversation about you know, CV-19 or, or, or politics or something. And then suddenly her mum will sort of press a button and she'll turn into a ghost or something like that. And that <laughs> seems to be like the running theme of the chat. Um, but I just wanted to, just thought it'd be a lovely time to, uh, to have a proper chat with you. And um, for, first of all, just to say thank you and congratulate you on that absolutely stunning instrument that, that came and that arrived last week. That guitar, I mean, I, I shed a bit of a tear when I opened the I opened the case. That thing, it was just. I mean, obviously, all your guitars are works of art, but that just was so, so beautiful in every way. And um, aside from the, the stunning aesthetics of uh, of the, the cotton and rosebud intertwining, um, sonically, it was like a juggernaut as well. I mean, I I I, I couldn't put it down. I just literally couldn't put it down. Well, Ben, I'm, I thank you so much. I really appreciate that that you were so excited by it. I mean, I was, but you know, I make them. Yeah. So you know, of course, I like them, and I'm trying to produce something that makes me happy. Yeah. Uh, but what I one thing I especially love about your reaction, of course, I love the whole thing, um, and, and is the fact that because I push the envelope with inlay art so much. Although on this one, you know, we were consciously a little more restrained mm. and that's what you wanted and oh, that's cool. Um, that my instruments have to be excellent mm. as the tool mm. they're supposed to be. I, I've so often said if, if a guitar doesn't sound good and play well, it's a complete failure. Yeah. That's its job. You know, it doesn't matter if the woods are amazing, the inlays astounding, the joinery is perfect. You know, if it isn't doing its job, it, you might as well put it on the wall and stick a plant in the sound hole, right? So we tell you, it, it's, it's, it's sound first, aesthetics later. You know, that's, that's yeah, the thing. Yeah. And I think that this being the first um, Laskin that we've commissioned uh, uh, with mm. you, which is, you know, that having played many of your guitars and always loved them, I knew that it was going to be as great as it was. But at the same time, you know, of what I mean, we, we did the build thread and we, you know, we're looking at the photos, but to hold it for the first time, it, it is, and I say this to a number of, of guys that we work with, you know, it's such a humbling experience. We, we're just a, a conduit between, you know, bringing it to the market and, 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 you know, filming it, photographing it, and hopefully finding a new home for it. Um, and so to be able to have that time to appreciate it is, um, is something that I'm, so lucky to be able to do and actually I felt a bit bad really because I've been coming in every day on my own um to the yeah. to the showroom because I don't live too far away so I'm sort of self-isolating in my car and then in the showroom and um I felt a bit bad because the guys didn't get to play it they, you know it, it just oh. <laughs> it, it, it literally it came in we did the unboxing I spoke to Stuart Ryan who lives in Bath and um I said, look, I've got to get some some content out to you know onto our product pages and out to our customers so that people can you know enjoy because that's also something that you know we love doing is people love just going on the site and listening to beautiful being played by great players. Um, and so he said, I said, if I just drive up to you 
and just drop off a couple of guitars at your doorstep and then just drive back. Could that work? And he said, yeah, that's fine. So I bundled the car up at like six in the morning <laughs> and drove from here up to Bath. Uh, and then I sort of waved from him as he had a, he had a, he had a coffee uh, and we had a very brief chat over his fence and then um, picked the guitars up, drove home, next day got up, went up, picked it up and then edited them over the weekend. And that guitar just, it blew my mind hearing what it should sound like from a, from a professional musician. Um, and uh, it was just, just great to see that it, um, it found a new home on the Tuesday. Yeah, it only, took, it, it only took a matter of days. We, we couldn't even do this interview before we pulled it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, to be fair, it's quite nice actually because we're, uh, we, we, can, we can talk about the guitar all day long, but it's nice just to, to be able to have, a, to have a proper chat and not just have to talk about that one instrument. Now we can talk about the next instrument. True enough. Yes. Um, yeah. I, one thing I wanted to ask though is I know that you've done, uh, you did a great interview with our dear friend Steve Bennett. Mm. And uh, I, I was chatting with Steve the other day. Um, but one thing that I wanted to ask you is, is wh what was the point that you, that you wanted to, to merge the, the, art, the artist in you with the inlay into the guitar building? Was there, was there a sort of a eureka moment or was it, was it always going to be that way? Uh, you know, that's, that's an interesting question because, no, of course not. I mean, as an apprentice, I learned how to, you know, cut a bit of shell like everybody does, <laughs> right? Because uh, mother of pearl and abalone are the traditional materials of inlay. And, you know, I could teach you to cut a, a piece of shell in five or 10 minutes, you know, how, how accurately you do it. That just takes <laughs> yeah. doing, right? I wouldn't trust me to do it, but. <laughs> no, but, you, but I'm just saying that's the basics. And that's, that's all I had uh, when I left uh, John Larivee and was on my own. You know, I could do some simple inlays. It was while I was on my own some years later when I got the idea of maybe trying to engrave a face. Uh, John didn't know how to engrave. We didn't do that. And uh, I didn't know how, and there was nobody to teach me. So I just bought a bunch of gravers from the jeweler supply and, uh, and a book about metal engraving, which turned out to be useless to me. <laughs> because cutting into metal is a whole different thing from cutting into a, a brittle material like shell or the recon stone or stuff like that. Um, so I ended up just teaching myself. But in terms of the design, uh, oh, and I should say my first tries with the graver, I still think of them as hesitant scratches. <laughs> you know? Not bold cutting lines, you know, <laughs> when you have some confidence, when you know what you're doing. Um, and I can still remember that. And that was back like mid 70s, like maybe 74, 75, something like that. Wow. But one day I'm sitting on my couch having lunch in my office and I was pouring through a book on the art of Maxfield Parrish, who was an early 20th century uh, illustrator, American illustrator, you know, iconic, very well known. Um, lots of his images are on mugs and posters and yeah. things, right? And uh, and there was this image where he had this, um, I guess it was somewhat tongue in cheek, some royal personage sitting on a throne, a throne being served by a bunch of servants. <laughs> and there was one image of a servant kind of heading towards the, the king. 
uh, but it looked to me like he was walking towards, and all of a sudden, I got this image of somebody walking onto the headstock of the guitar, as if that narrow headstock was your viewfinder of a camera. And, and someone may be walking across, but you didn't see their action until they came into the view, right? Wow. So I thought, okay, and me with no art training whatsoever, I thought, okay, I've got to have enough body language there that the viewer gets the sense that he's in motion. And so I played around, how should I put him? Where should I, what should I do? How much of his arms and legs need to be shown? And once I did that, then it just hit me that I don't have to be just holding myself to the traditional, you know, a nice little swirly floral or a winged creature or a cartoon-like animal or something, which is the tradition in decorative inlay. I thought, wait a minute, this is, this is my canvas right here. Mm. I, this, I can do anything here. I don't have to worry about avoiding the machine head washers. Go right over them. I could break the nut barrier. You know, inlay could spill into the first frets that's connected to the headstock, not, not a separate little, little bits. Anyway, it, it just has grown from there, but it's been so many decades. And long ago, I reached a point where no project limits me. Oh, I will find a way to depict what you want on this long, narrow canvas and, and show what needs to be shown. So what, at what point then, see I always thought that you came from an artist background. That's really interesting that you say yeah. that. No, I mean, okay. what I will say on that is there must have, there was something innate that was just never developed. Mm. Uh, because two of my sisters ended up doing some painting, just amateur level, but they did paint. Um, and what really helped me was when my wife, who is now a retired educator, she turned me on to a book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. Oh, wow, okay. Which is a phenomenal book that breaks through the left-right hemisphere problems mm. of people who are not familiar with the creative mode and yeah. she can train people to do it. And I actually use some of her exercises when I teach inlay and engraving, because it opened up the world for me. And, and I've become a much better artist at drawing. Um, and I also learned through the years, oh, no wonder artists hire models, because now you can see what it looks like when somebody's leaning at this angle and the light's yeah. coming this way and where does the shadow get created? And yeah. oh, that's what an eye looks like when it's doing that, you know? Yeah. And now I figured it out, so I hire models and do my research. One thing I was gonna say just before we took a little break there is that what is important to me with the inlay art, especially when it covers the whole neck, yeah. and it's what I call a full narrative, but I'm key on that word because I look for a narrative arc the way you do in theater or, or, or a, a novel, uh, or even in painting, I suppose, mm -hmm or dance, that there's a beginning and, and middle and end yeah. to the story, that there yeah. is a story there. So especially when people are giving me complex projects and, and I'm getting a, a novel's worth of, of possible things that are important in their lives, mm -hmm. I distill it down to a film script, but I look for that, that arc, whether it's in the theme of what's depicted uh, or to some degree in even the color scheme that's happening, 
-hmm. when I'm laying out all the different materials to figure out how everything's going to fit together and work together, I stand back, blur my eyes, and I'm looking for which colors jump out. And I'm going, oh boy, there's a lot of red up there, but we're more into blue-greeny down here. I need to reintroduce some red or orange or something in that color range down here Just to balance it. Yeah, give it so I want a visual narrative, both in uh, color scheme and the storyline. Anyway, that's the stuff that excites me, that it challenges me, but it, it, it satisfies my creativity, makes me happy. Well, that's, the, that's amazing. And it, as you were saying that, I was thinking to myself, it's actually similar to any form of, uh, of artistry, whether it be um, script writing or songwriting or composing. Sure. You're looking for, you're trying to pull the emotion and like you were saying, build the story, build that arc so that when you get to the headstock as such, that's where, yeah. you're, at, that's where you're at the kind of, sort of crescendo. That's, that's where you have the orchestra and all of the choirs singing. Um, so, yeah. and, and, and then what would you say then um, has been the, 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 the moment, so you build your first guitar, you learn, how did you learn to utilize the tools? So I know that you um, used to do a, you still do uh, classes and uh -huh. there was one class that I, I, I loved seeing on, uh, on Facebook that you had, you had uh, all the EGB guys, you had Jason oh, yeah. was there, <laughs> you had Rakangas was there, Michael Sport was there. And um, how do you find, is th there must be a challenge in teaching that and bringing out the best in people with wanting to learn how to do such um, intricate inlay? Well, I, I do teach from time to time, not a lot. Um, and I focus on that aspect only because to me, I can isolate that from the guitars. And in a week, we can actually get through all the steps of a project from cutting it, inlaying it, and then engraving. Um, and that's usually what I'm teaching, inlay and engraving. Um, whereas, you know, these week-long courses of assemble a guitar, that doesn't interest me because you can't do a good job. That's gonna, you can have some fun. You can put a kit together, sort of, without the finish on it yet. But that doesn't turn my crank. But yes, that class you're referring to, the one that happened in Vienna, yeah. with a whole bunch of great builders. Boy, was that a wonderful time to be hanging out with everybody for a whole week. I know. And what a great bunch of people. I, mean I know. I'll tell you, that was a dream time. I loved it. And, um, uh, but what was neat about that is they were so skilled automatically, you know, from their own work and the years of their own work, that as soon as I introduce them to a new tool and a new way of holding a new tool, they, they figured it out like in two seconds. And the quality of the work they were all doing, all different, but everybody was so far beyond what I normally see. It, it was a treat, really. And there were a few people there who were just blowing my mind. I'm like, oh my God, it took me 25 <laughs> years to get that good and they've done it in three days. That's not fair. That's just not fair. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it was, it was a treat to see. And now I see some of them using it in yeah. their, in their work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but interesting, uh, if I can mention one name, maybe it's not fair, but uh, Jason Costell, you know, we all know Jason, of course, and he came over from the States to Vienna for the class, and he even admitted that he doesn't really do much inlay, 
and he doesn't really have a strong desire to he's happy doing what he's doing but he loved the idea of learning a new skill yeah i love that. that's jason that is that is yeah i know god love him you know it was a, anyway it was it was such a joy to hang out with these quality people as well as you know immensely skilled people mm. that was that was a, a memorable time and and so i have to ask this but you were the you know how does it feel to have been the sort of inventor of the of the you must get asked this all the time to be the inventor of the arm bevel uh, your your version of the arm bevel yeah. Yeah. um uh, it, it must does it does it um does it bug you in any way that you see that now on mass-produced instruments? Ah, that's an interesting question. Um, yes, you're right. I am the originator. Um, and it was maybe five years after me that Kevin Ryan came up with his version. Mm -hmm. And then now there's kind of roughly the two variants, mm -hmm. two styles. And more power to him. His is really interesting to me, too. I like it. Mm -hmm. um, but you're right, the bevels. Um, I was very gratified to see them on Luthier's guitars because mm. it just makes the guitar uh, uh, more ergonomic, uh, easier to use. It solves some physical issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get, I'm swamped with letters from arts medicine clinics thanking me for doing this because of the problems they were seeing for year after year yeah. and nobody was solving it. Um, and I purposely left it in the creative commons. Same with the side port sound hole. That was my next question, yeah. Yeah, I, I wanted them to be in the creative commons. A sidebar, I have a patent on something that cost me a lot of money and time and never made me anything. And yet the products are out there. I'm the one who owns the patent on uh, humidifying musical instruments using chemical membrane wow. uh, to stop the leaking. Like uh, Planet Waves makes one and another one. And nobody was interested when I was running around trying to license it. But within six months of my patent ending, everybody came out with their version. And, you know, w welcome to real life. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but, but back to this one and your question. Yes, uh, I was gratified to see Luthier's individual builders pick it up and do their versions. And I've passed along instructions to anybody who asked. But the manufacturers doing it, yeah, it kind of bugs because they don't give credit. Now, I completely agree. I mean, you know, it's I, I I completely agree that it is so lovely that you any luthier that that, that uses your design mm -hmm. you are always credited. In fact, I think that you know there have been times when um, we may have listed an instrument and we've been and we haven't by accident haven't listed your name as a credit and been pulled up by the luthier and said, "Hey, Laskin Bevel." Wow. Oh, that's nice. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but that's cool. You don't need to call it that. It's up to the guitar, the luthiers to do it, you know. So that's not, I don't see it as a problem. And, you know, in the manufacturers, one of the first ones to do it was Bob Taylor, who offered it as, as on one of his special models. You could do a special thing. But even, even in his print ads, he put them down as their version of the Laskin Bevel. Yeah. Even though it was more like a Ryan style, but yeah. he still gave me the credit, which was very nice. It's more some big uh, Asian manufacturers. I see ads now, like on the lower level guitars, mm -hmm. not guitars you'd be dealing with or, or our level. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, eh, you know, it bugs me, but I just move on. You know, I, I tried sending a little note saying, uh, you who you might want to give credit and yeah. they don't respond. They don't care. And, and was it when, when, 
was it the fact that you were exactly that looking through your build process and, and saying, I wonder how I can make this more ergonomic for the player? Or was it the fact that you as a player were finding that, hey, this is uncomfortable or this is causing me any pain or? You know, uh, that's a good question, but and I, I can't actually take credit for being the genius. Um, wait, is any, are you recording this? Oh shoot. oh, shoot. I shouldn't have said that. Now, they, they, both concepts, both the bevel and the side port originated with a request from a player, from a customer. Like, and they were both on classical guitars. And the first one said, you know, it really bugs my arm all the time. And you know, the classical guitar technique your arm is more up from the guitar. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not like us steel string players, we hug it and we rest our pinky on the top, right? Mm -hmm. They suspend their hand above the strings, so they're more leaning at a 45 degree angle. And, and he said, uh, could you round it off a bit and make it more comfortable? And I said, sure, uh, do you care how far I go? And they said, no, no, do your own thing. And that's how it happened. So it was my design, but the thought of it came from a player. Isn't that amazing? And then even the side port, it was a classical player who often performed in a duo with a cellist. Mm -hmm. And occasionally when they're in environments that aren't amplified, like certain classical halls, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and she said, this woman was saying, you know, I'm, when the cello is really digging in, <laughs> I can hardly hear myself play. And we all know that, you know, boat instruments project incredibly well. Yeah. All us guitar makers are jealous, right? <laughs> and uh, so she said, could you do something where I could hear myself a little stronger? So I put a hole on the side as a monitor. And I did it with a sliding door. The first ones were like that. So we could open and close it. You know, a bit of a pain in the ass because you had to build internal rails, line everything with felt so it would seal properly when it was closed. Even when it was open, it wouldn't rattle. Anyway, she came to my shop to pick it up, playing the guitar. She opens it up, and I'm sitting on my couch seven feet away. And all of a sudden, I hear the guitar go from, uh, uh. Yes. Suddenly, the whole instrument was fuller, and both of us were going, what the hell was that? Take the door off, take the door off. I know, like what, what, what was that? Get she heard the now. guitar stronger, she heard the guitar louder, it did the monitor effect, but we had no expectation that it was going to affect what was going out. Mm. So I played the guitar, she listened, we'd open and close, same effect. Next time I did it on a flamenco guitar, same effect. Then I did it on a steel string, same effect, yes, you heard the guitar louder, it served the monitor function, but it also made the guitar sound fuller out front. Yeah. And this was... But why do you think that is? Why, what, is what is the factor that it's suddenly enabling it to project out the front more? Well, you know, Pushing the nobody, nobody really knows for sure. Uh, I, I, I sent in a proposal to a grant to run an experiment, build an experimental guitar and play with it in a studio, and, uh, but didn't get the money. But I'd love to really understand exactly what's going on. The best theory I've heard was from somebody who works at the Bose company, you know, B-O-S-E, that mm -hmm. makes those wonderful little CD players and the Bose speakers and all that yeah. stuff, right? And he was a physicist who worked for them and he came up to me at a guitar show. And he said, you know, 
I think I know why this is so effective. And then he asked me, he said, have you ever seen inside one of those little CD players that sound so amazing for their size? And he said, if you took the lid off, you would see this rat's maze of spaces where the sound keeps moving around and it allows longer wavelengths to stay, uh, um, stay together without being broken up by encountering physical surfaces. And he said, because of that, you're hearing a larger dynamic range from the speakers. I'm not a physicist, so I'm just telling you what he said. And he said, his theory is that this sound hole up here is uh, across the longest dimension of the body. And what he felt it was enabling is lower frequencies to be more of them to move into audible range. Wow. So it's adding a fullness to everything that's coming out of the guitar. Sounds good to me, but you know, <laughs> it's only his, his theory. Well, but what's, what's really interesting is the fact that it was a player's perspective that inspired yeah. him to, yeah. to, for both of those incredible designs. But it is, that's the thing I love about the sample is, you know, for, if you're playing on your own and it, it is just, it's immersive, isn't it? You, you can just drift away whilst, whilst playing because mm -hmm. it is that monitor effect. Yeah. And there are great luthiers out there at the moment. We, we, look, we represent um, Skytop Guitars and Eric, and he obviously doesn't have a sound hole, just has two large sound ports. Mm -hmm. And the volume is still, you can still be across the room and you can still hear the guitar just as well as if it, if, if it didn't have a sound port and it just had a sound hole. And I've had customers come and um, play uh, his instrument, among many others, but his in particular because of because of not having a sound hole. And you literally, it's like you're just taking it. As soon as you hit the first, first note, it's like you're diving in and you're just swimming around because you're so immersed in the instrument, which is something that I, I, I really love. So aside from all of the, um, the designs uh, uh, that, that you've, you've inspired and created, is there a particular part aside from the aesthetics that you, when you get to in your build process, that you is like your fun bit, not fun bit because obviously the design is your fun bit, but like the bit that you enjoy the most? Is it the, is it the voicing? Is it the um, bracing? Is there anything in particular that you love doing? You know, that's interesting um, because there are, you know, there's some moves every maker will tell you there's some things that you just can't wait to get through because it's just a lot of elbow work. Neck carving by chance? <laughs> yeah, you know, like scraping the bindings is one of my least favorite, you know, because they're all wood bindings and your hand scraping them down, you know. Um, there's a few parts that I really love. I have to admit, um, I, I love bracing the tops because it's careful and slow and when everything is sanded and shaped, to me it's just this lovely construction that's now all hidden away unless you look in with a mirror, right? Yeah. Um, and, and you're being very careful about you know, what you're doing because you know it plays a role in the sound. Uh, although on that I will say one of the reasons my guitars sound the way I do is I play with top thicknesses as well, mm -hmm. not just bracing. Um, and uh, another part I like is carving the necks. Uh, I, the oh, last really? thing I ever want to do is a CNC machine to do it for yeah. me because yeah. I love the physicality of it. It feels like sculpture to me. 
Mm. and you're constantly feeling the heel with your hand and you're closing your eyes. Is this a smooth line or is there any bump that I've got to get rid of here, you know, beside what you're, what you're observing with your eyes. And, and just when everything takes a shape, it's just, I like that. And then of course, uh, you know, stringing it up. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, but there are, I, I love, I love following Luthiers, you know, Instagram pages or Facebook pages or when we're doing a build thread and you see the kind of, the block of wood for the neck and then you see that that kind of how the, the, the first stages of the carving and then when you suddenly see this thing and you hold it in your hands it's like for someone that you know could never do that um myself <laughs> it's just it's just it's just truly astounding how ergonomically as well when when, when you have sort of yourself and the instrument that we just we just got in the ergonomics of the neck uh, you know, when getting up to the upper register, are just so comfortable. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, the only other thing I, you got me thinking about it, probably another moment that I love is um, when I'm engraving and I finish my cutting and I'm filling in with the black filler. Yeah. And I finally see, and then I wipe it all off and I see what I've done. That's, I, I look forward to that moment. It's almost, to me, it's almost like, um, you know, saving the French fries for, <laughs> you know, your favorite thing for the end of the meal so you can just gorge on them, you know? You know, it's, it's like that. It's getting, getting through the vegetables as quickly as you can and getting to the important bits that we all want, you know, the sugar, the fat. <laughs> And so, anyway. and so when, when you're so you, when you're doing your the, the inlay work, are you obviously you have a you sketch out? I'm, presu I'm presuming this. I might be wrong, but obviously I've seen yeah. work. You sketch out. Um, is it then that you you think of your coloring and, and and do you then say, well, that material is gonna? I know that that material is gonna be that, or I know right. that I'm gonna use this here, and ha and and is it then about finding the material that's gonna be able to match that? Um, yeah, it is in a way. Um, I, you're right, I start with a drawing, the sketch, my line drawing, and uh, that's really my cut lines, but it's, it's, um, it's the finished drawing. And after I've done that, then I think, okay, how am I going to reproduce this, the materials? To some degree, you're thinking along the way, but mostly I wait till the end, and then I start one part of it at a time, and I take uh, raw materials and I lay them on my workbench juxtaposed against each other. You know, if I know that this this part is going to be touching this one, well, I've got to be able to see the parts. So they both shouldn't be the same material or the same color range. You know, I'm thinking about that as the same time as I'm thinking of, well, um, this guy is wearing a suit. Well, I've got to make sure his tie matches his shoes. <laughs> because that's the way it would be, right? Or, um, you know, or, um, you know, this woman, she'd never wear uh, uh, those shoes with that dress, right? Or, or whatever it is. I'm, and then I'm going, okay, then what's the material that would show that dress properly, but work with all the other materials around it? And, and sometimes it can take me an entire day to sift through all of my drawers of material and I like to have a lot, whether it's various varies of shell or stone or legal ivories, whatever it is, I like to have lots of options so I can lay it, spill it all out on my workbench and find exactly the right piece 
for example, when there's body parts, uh, like it's somebody's elbow and, and the, you know, the musculature and the upper arm, well, I'll search and see if I can find a piece of mother of pearl with a bit of graining that would show me that musculature separate from any engraving I might do. And let's use the natural figure to show what I need to show. So that's, 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 that's yeah. shading, basically. In a way, it adds to it, it adds to the dimensionality. So that's why I take a lot of time and spend a lot of money to have a lot of materials in my stock. So I have lots to go through and search for the ultimate piece, you know? Incredible. So, uh, yeah, so I try, but, I, but this is, it's all, it's such an enjoyable uh, task to do that. It's like, I love, I'm a big fan of, of Michael Sport, as I know, I know that you are, and his, his instruments. And yeah, he, amazing. He loves going to sort of flea markets and, and getting all of these little gems that he uses and that they become his inspiration. Um, how do you get your, how do you, you mentioned you have a lot of supplies in, from all different ranges. Do you have guys that find something and say, hey, great, I've got this. You're going to definitely have to take this on. Or do you know you, what? Uh, luckily you are right you know i mean um knock on wood um <laughs> i guess when you've been around for a long time and you know a lot of people and a lot of people know your work that does happen um and 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 i love when that happens you know the shell suppliers they'll say look great we got some unusually large shells in you know and we're going to be able to cut larger than usual pieces um and we know you're always after the big pieces so do you want some? And I usually I say, yeah, just send it to me. Don't even ask. Just send it to me and send me the invoice. I'll take it. Um, and uh, luckily for me, um, some years ago, I made a guitar for Chuck Erickson, the Duke of Pearl. Right. And for those who don't know him, um, who may be listening to this, um, he's uh, the founder of the biggest shell dealer in the U.S. And he's also one half of the the two guys who invented laminated shell, the Abalam sheets and stuff. Wow. That's Chuck. Anyway, I made a guitar for him. And part of the payment, remember, he's been a shell dealer for decades. He had his own personal stash of all kinds of rare shells that nobody else has anymore. And he shipped the entire store of it to me to pick through and take anything I wanted and then we just calculated the value and we subtracted that from the cost of the guitar. Wow. I still have lots of his rare, unusual pieces. And you know what? On the guitar you just got, on the cotton. Oh, yeah. That, cotton, that was going to be my, one of my next questions. because that. All right. So I, I forgot to mention this to you, but I, the, the mother of pearl that represented the cotton is something called a, a figure called fleece. Mm -hmm. That fine, fine little figure in it, mm. that's entirely rare. And I have, I have a, a small little plastic bag filled with, you know, maybe 15 pieces of it. And I use three of them for that because it so perfectly showed, you know, represented the texture of a cotton ball. Yeah. But I, feel, it's, I feel honored. I feel honored that that was on our 10th anniversary guitar. Well, I mean, it's an important guitar for you and for me, but you know, my approach is fine. If this is what's going to represent this to the best, I have to use it. I don't just save it, I use it when it's the right time to use it. And that was. 
That is awesome. What an awesome story. So one question I have, as you were talking about those big sheets, I was thinking to myself, what do you do with like the offcuts? Because you must be using the sheet and think to yourself, I can't throw that away. That's going to be an eye, that might be a finger or whatever. Yeah, I have drawers filled with offcuts. Because, you know, sometimes little pieces and stuff, I can go to the offcuts and use sections of them. Yeah, you don't throw this stuff away. Every once in a while, I grab a handful of it and give it to somebody who's just getting into inlay and, ah, here, take some shell. Don't worry about it. Just take it. And um, Or when I'm teaching, I bring a lot of offcuts just for the students to practice on, yeah. getting used to how does it feel to make a cut into something with this little hand graver tool. Um, so, yeah, but I do have lots, but I keep it all. And that's so lovely that you, you, obviously because you're, you're so highly respected within the industry and it must be, um, it must be amazing for you to have seen how the, the Luthier community, I mean, I, that's something that I love more than anything about this, that the industry that we're in is this beautiful community that we're in and we're a part of. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it must be for you to have seen so many new Luthiers and the world of... Oh, yeah. It just it, it just there's so many more now over the course of your um, your career, um, and do you find that you 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 must be inundated with people asking for advice and? You know. Well, I mean, yes and no. Um, certainly, I'm asked for apprenticeships, you know, every week, uh, <laughs> and I don't take anybody on. Um, and you know, I'm one of the founders of Asia Association of String Instrument Artisans, and was its president for a while, and. You know, that's one way of giving back and, and supporting the community. Uh, I also drafted the code of ethics for our trade, and it's the only one that exists for Luthier's trade um, that was put out by Asia while I was president. Um, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to give advice all the time, uh, no hesitation, but you're right, it's been quite a change. Uh, one, one way that really struck home for me was um, going down to the Healdsburg guitar shows in California when they were running, when Luthier's Mercantile were putting these shows on. I remember going down for one of the early ones, maybe the second or third one was my first time. And there were maybe 25 builders there. And the last time I did it, maybe the second to last show before they shut it down, uh, they stopped uh, letting people in at 175 builders because there was just no more room in the display hall for humans. <laughs> and I remember looking across at this sea of guitar necks, you know, everywhere. And I'm thinking, my God, it wasn't like that 30 years ago. Look at the difference. And you would have um, inspired so many of those luthiers. That must, that, must, you must, that must be incredible. I guess, you know, I, but I'm, I'm, you know, there's a number of us uh, of this vintage. You know, we were there from the early days. And yeah, it's getting close to 50 years for me. Uh, it's been since 1971. Are you going to do something special for that 50th? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Haven't thought oh. about it that much, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, but maybe we could think about it. Well, that's what I was literally about to say. I was like, that's, oh, that's a well, in there. Yeah. For, uh, I, I, ben, I have you in the books for next year and the year after. So we will need to talk about another project. There you go. Uh, you heard it. You heard it here. Um, yeah. And so, last question, I want to just say thank you so much for stopping in. It, it, you've really made my day. Uh, this is the, like I said, I've kind of been, kind of been in, in this room on my own for about seven or eight weeks. Yeah. 
and see another face and properly chat is really lovely, other than seeing Dave, our brilliant technician. Um, is there a particular, I'm sure this is a pretty bog standard question, but love asking it. Is there a particular set of tone with that you love working with? I know that you love working with African Blackwood, and I know that that's what we brought in. Is there anything that you love working with and also anything that you have yet to work with that you want to work with? Oh, that's interesting because you're right. These days, all of us are trying uh, more variety of materials than we ever did before. You know, uh, I look at my stack of East Indian rosewood on my shelf that I've hardly touched, you know, in a long time. It's rare. I think, oh, look at that. I've actually got to pull out a set of Indian rosewood. Well, I haven't, people don't want that anymore. But um, so I've been using all kinds of things. I've been uh, very surprised with Wenge yeah. on how good it sounded. You know, not too dramatic looking, but really good sounding. Um, I've made a couple of Mun Ebony, M-U-N Ebony. I think it can sometimes be called other things. Um, there's a bunch in the Ebony's, you know, Macassar I've used a lot. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, 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 it looks like I'm trying some woods that, that people, others have tried. And, and um, I'm going to be building a guitar from the tree for the first time. Um, but I didn't buy the wood. They, my customer bought the wood and fine. If they wanted to overpay for a piece of wood, they're welcome to. I wasn't going to. Um, so that's coming up. But you're right. Ever since I pulled away from, from Brazilian and stopped buying anymore, uh, I think of Blackwood as kind of the best equivalent. But Ziracote makes a great guitar as well. It's another wood with a certain brittleness. Mm. in its specific gravity, like Brazilian rosewood, like Delbergio Negra. Um, I will, I've got a set of Honduras rosewood, but it, it didn't excite me the way it looked. Mm. Um, so I don't know, you know, I, 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 to be honest, I'm trying a bunch of different woods at customers' request and enjoying seeing what they do. But right at the moment, there's no species right in my head saying, God, I'd love to try that. Yeah. Um, I'm just... I'm just happy to use the ones that seem to be delivering really good results. Yeah, well, that's, that's evident in, uh, in the guitar that you just delivered to us. And, and I, love, I love that you mentioned Wenge, because mm. it's, it's, a, it's funny, because not many people, you know, it's not particularly exotic, but yeah. I, I think it is, without a doubt, one of the best sounding tonewoods available. Um, it really is. It's, it's so close to Brazilian rosewood. Um, yeah. Well, let's think about that. You know, I'll tell you a brief anecdote. Um, sorry, we're going on long. I hope that's okay. Yeah. Um, but a pleasure to chat. So um, the first time I used it was at the request of a, a client, and it was for a steel string. And uh, it came out superb, sounding-wise. And the guy who got it was an Italian guy who happens to own a collection uh, that he's actually, he's an architect, but he is, owns a collection of over 200 guitars and he's looking at actually building a museum for them. And wow. half are classicals and many of them are historic instruments. That's part of his interest. You know, he's even got a, he's, he's got a Torres guitar. Wow. Um, but he said of his steel strings, he's, he had never played a steel string as good as the one I made him. And that was Wenge. So I thought, hmm, interesting. And I've got a, a classical with Wenge in the spray booth right now. 
that my oh, first wow. possible with it. So we'll see. But yeah, I was knocked out by the wood. I thought, okay, it, it's not that decorative, very even grain. So yeah. pleasure to work with, big pores, but so what? I had bent fine. Uh, but I was really knocked out by what it, what it did tone-wise. So I agree with you, yeah. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your morning. Um, I know that we went back and forth trying to figure out a time of, uh, yeah. but it's just such a, I mean, such a pleasure to talk, to speak with you. And thank you for delivering. Uh, and I'm one of, obviously you've delivered sensational guitars all the time, but for us, that guitar was so special. Um, and it meant so much to both myself uh, and also Kim. And uh, it just looked so beautiful. So thank you very much. Well, you're welcome, and thanks for doing a great job with it, and uh, looking forward to the next project. Which might be the 50th, 50th anniversary. There you go. Yeah. We'll have to talk about it. All right. All right. But you we'll take talk. care. See you very soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.